Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to veteran pro player David Ochoa. Last spring, David appeared in his 100th Grand Prix. David is one of the best players in the game and gets to play test with other legends such as Luis Scott Vargas, Paul Cheon, Josh Utter-Layton, and Matt Nass. David writes for Channel Fireball and tweets about food, especially bread and toasts. He also shares some tips about how to get better at magic and what he's looking forward to in the future. I caught up with David last summer, 2016, just after GP Portland. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Ochoa. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. And today, my guest is David Ochoa. David, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. And where are you joining us from today? Well, today I happen to be in sunny Oakland, California, and it is a a balmy 65 degrees. That's wonderful. I'm up here in Seattle. It's pretty sunny here today, so we're getting some nice weather. Yeah, looking forward to uh, a little bit more good weather for as long as it'll last. So, uh, what's up? Well, not much. I ran into you at GP Portland and you were so gracious to stop for a moment and chat with me. I was talking to you about the podcast. It was funny. We were next to the Good Game massage table and someone was getting a massage there. And as we were chatting, that person just kind of popped their head up and said, yeah, you should do this. And David, who was that person? Oh, that happened to be uh, Amy Bailey, uh, my girlfriend. She's also uh, got a podcast, uh, I think The Planeswalker Guide. Yes. And she's got a lot of other uh, friends who have podcasts like that, Aaron Campbell. And she's very involved in the uh, social part of the community and interacts with uh, a lot of that part of it. Yes. And also, uh, I think she's a chef. Yeah, she's uh, she used to be uh, work in the, the industry. Uh, she worked with uh, at Pete's Coffee at uh, William Sonoma at Dosa Restaurant Group, and is now working as uh, part of the Humphrey Slocum Ice Cream uh, Company. Not it's not so much like hands on cooking, but she uh, is still involved in in aspect like that from every now and then. That is very cool. David, you are very well known in the Magic community and you've competed in over a hundred Grand Prix. Yeah, I've been playing for a while. I hadn't always been playing in Grand Prix, but uh, my first one was roughly 12, 13 years ago. It was, I think, Grand Prix Anaheim in 2003 or four. Then that was uh, extended at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. I was playing Red Deck Wins and a metagame of Tinker. So, I, I came uh, completely prepared. I managed <laughs> to get lucky uh, a little bit over there at that tournament and ended up finishing in ninth place, which was you know, a nice little experience into competitive magic and sort of lit the fire as it were. That is awesome. Could you just start from the beginning and just tell us, you know, where you're from, where you grew up and how you got started playing magic? Well, I'm originally from the Bay Area. I'm born and raised in a small town called Hayward, which Unless you're from the Bay Area, you probably haven't heard of it, but we can just say that I'm from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's easier to put on a map. And I started playing in high school. It was sort of like new kid in town, new school, that sort of thing. Walking around, have no friends, no idea what to do. I walk into the library one day and I have got a lunch period to burn. So, I'm just walking around, look over and I see 
people sitting around this table laughing a bit and walk up to see what's uh, what they're doing. And wow, look, there's this game that's uh, got no idea what it is, but everyone seems to be enjoying it immensely. And it's got a cool artwork and seems to be taking up a bit of time. So I watch for a bit and get hooked into it like most people do. That's awesome that you started off kind of seeing other people playing. And from that point until you came in ninth at Grand Prix Anaheim in 2003, what were some things that you did to deepen your understanding of the game? Well, I started looking at uh, different magazine publications. This was when the internet was still uh, a a young little thing. Mm -hmm. And so, there wasn't really too much support. I didn't really know how to go online or research in that capacity. So, uh, if you remember back to your days of the Scry Magazine and Duelist and yeah. those publications, there would be listings of local comic book shops or if you had a, a Yellow Pages, that little uh, tome of info, <laughs> yeah. they would have uh, places like that. And I found some pl- some stores that had cards and I would go to those and see what kind of cards they had and with my meager little savings would acquire various booster packs of, I think it was fourth edition at the time or mm-hmm. the expansion that would, had most recently come out was Alliances or Homelands. I want to say Homelands a few weeks before the set mm-hmm. and bought some cards, had no idea what was what or you know, what was valuable or anything like that. But I had a lot of ammo at that point and came back with a huge deck of all the cards that I had acquired. Mm-hmm. Not including it. Well, I think the, the most impressive card that I had was a feral salad. Yes, that was the largest power and toughness and had the most mana symbols. So it was clearly the most powerful card that I had. <laughs> <laughs> it was a feral salad? Yeah, it, I think it was that. Uh huh. And just uh, start playing and I've been playing ever since. That's very cool. I mean, how did it feel for you to just be playing casually and then going to a Grand Prix and then coming in ninth? It was fun. There was a bit of a progression escalating upwards from just being a completely casual player who had no real grasp of the rules to playing in a structured tournament like a Grand Prix. I started playing in Summer Sealed League uh, in between the times. And then I would, went to play in uh, Iperlace, of all things. Uh, this was for Urza Saga and uh, some people who were at a local store that I started playing at regularly would had organized it. And so, I went playing there and I liked the way that tournament felt and started playing in more pre-releases whenever they happened. So, this is roughly three times a year like it is now. Mm-hmm. And so, those were fun and I started playing in, in PTQs and liked the competition more and more and that's how I ended up going to a Grand Prix. I just started playing in weekly tournaments at uh, local stores. Found that competitive level play was where I was had the most enjoyment. I liked uh, getting my face pounded in. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And, and since then, you have accumulated six top eight finishes. You've competed in numerous pro tours and even you came in third at Pro Tour Return to Ravnica. Yeah, I've been playing on in on the Pro Tour for a while, pretty consistently since 2009. Mm-hmm. About uh, my first Pro Tour was a few years before that in 2005 for Pro Tour London, and that was pretty fun. I didn't do nearly as well compared to uh, uh, Return to Rapkin, though. And uh, most of my Pro Tour experience up until 2009 had been filled with uh, not too much success. I'd made a a few day twos, but uh, nothing really substantial. What was it like getting into the top eight of uh, Pro Tour Return to Ravnica? What was that feeling like? That was uh, pretty exhilarating, actually. I had just 
finished uh, day one at six and two. I had ended up missing out on a friend's wedding to, to go to that, actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I really wanted to make that tournament count. And it's not like I was trying any harder or anything like that. I was just playing and I had to go six and two on day two to make top eight. And I, at one point I had finished the round. This was two before the last. So I was, I realized that I was six and oh, and then I could just actually draw in. And that had been a weird spot because I hadn't been before. And I thought, huh, wow, I don't actually have to get any more points any. <laughs> this is interesting. The tournament's not over and I'm already in top eight. Technically, I just don't have to get DQ'd. <laughs> That's so interesting. Right. So you had this weird feeling. You were like, I can just draw into the top eight of the pro tour. Yeah. And this was, uh, it was a nice feeling. I was trying to get other friends in who were still playing in the Swiss. Uh, they who needed spots to be knocked open in the top eight. And so I, I played for that and for a, a better seating because the play draw was based on Swiss mm-hmm. endings. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. That's really cool. David, I wanted to ask you, in your magic career, was there a moment when things shifted for you? As in, like, there was a change in your perspective? Or was there a time that you felt that you had broken a glass ceiling or that you had leveled up or overcome a personal barrier for yourself? Oh, I remember playing in high school and this was over the summer of between my sophomore and junior year. I just played a lot of seal deck mm-hmm. and came back noticeably better compared to at least uh, my friends who I was playing with at the time. I just recognized a lot more interactions in, in the games that I was playing and it seemed like it was just much easier to, to play and make decisions than it was before. Mm-hmm. So, that was a... Uh, a noticeable jump in how easy it was for me to play, which isn't to say that I was still any good. (laughs) I just, it was easier for me to see I should probably do this as opposed to that. Then later on, I suppose it was... You'll hear this pretty frequently from from people when they ask well, how to get better. Or it's to play with people who are better than you and or more enthusiastic about the game than you are just because by playing in that sort of environment, you'll be uh, the benefit of seeing people who make decisions better than you do and they can make them faster. You learn that uh, that mindset, that muscle memory, just being able to analyze the game uh, more efficiently and you can grow off of how they uh, play and interact with the game. Interesting. David, are there things that you do while you play that you visualize or you sequence or map out your subsequent turns? This is an interesting question because you'll hear some people say, you'll talk about muscle memory, kind of like uh, an arcade game, just Mm -hmm. being able to play on uh, uh, by feel. Mm -hmm. That's how I play generally. It's pretty weird. I'll just make decisions and then sometimes later on, if a, a board situation is a bit more complicated, I'll step back and analyze something or... Or I'll just I'll have a gut feeling and and just go with that. But there are other times when I have to process things a bit more manually, and mm-hmm. that takes a bit more time because I'm gonna go through all of the different scenarios just roughly by hand. I mean, if you were to to call that to describe it as a certain lingo. Mm-hmm. As far as just analyzing a board, like I just play by feel. And it, it, that's a tough way to describe how to do it because it comes with experience after just seeing so many games play out in a certain way. 
Yeah, that is a very interesting concept because uh, just over this past weekend in GP Portland, I had done the best I have ever done in a large tournament. You know, I had a win and in for day two. I lost it, so I didn't make day two, which was fine. But I had never, I didn't scrub out, which I thought was a great achievement for myself. And watching the top tables and watching the pros play, I just noticed an ease that the pros would just glide through their plays. And, and of course, all players would stop for a moment and go into the tank. And it was just really delightful to just see that kind of play, that style of play, that level of play. And as you said, it does take a little bit of muscle memory and it does take experience and putting in the reps to be able to play like that. Because I am very interested in becoming a better player and then one day gliding through some of my matches like that. (laughs) So yeah, very interesting. What you benefit a lot from is uh, repetition, whether it's from the specific deck that you're using or just previous experiences with uh, similar archetypes, you'll gain an understanding that lets you say, well, this is probably going to be the decision that gives me the best option for this particular part of the turn and so on. David, could you share some specific moments in your recent memory where you felt that you had done something or worked with a team that specifically leveled you up? The team concepts that I've been working with for the last few years or so, we structure our testing in a uh, multi-step. It's divided into uh, multiple categories depending on uh, when a site gets released. And what that means is basically a site gets released and we'll spend some time playing testing constructed and then we'll spend some time testing limited or vice versa based on when the set is available to us or when it's most convenient. And so what that means is We have a group of people and some of us will draft, some of us will test constructed based on our schedules. And when it's all convenient for us to do so, we'll collaborate together and share information. And what that lets us do is get a lot more experience for the entire group uh, that we can benefit from individually than we would have if we had only gone out on our own and tried to accumulate all that knowledge by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, by working as a team, we can, it lets us be better prepared individually for any one tournament. As far as leveling up personally, part of the benefit that that I've gained from just being exposed to that type of uh, tournament testing is is actually just in the preparation of it, just knowing that that is the method that I need to focus on to succeed individually. So, being able to plan a session out like that is one of the main ways that that I uh, have improved uh, personally in the last few years. Understanding that that's what I need to do and then structuring my testing schedule based on on that framework. And that lets people that I'm I'm working with also uh, benefit in that regard. We need to be able to not only know how to play magic, but know what we what kind of magic we need to play to actually benefit in the first place. That's great, David. I think that you are part of Team Channel Fireball, and I think that the members are you, LSV, Louis Scott Vargas, Josh Utter Layton, Paul Chion, and Matt Nass. Yeah, that's part of the uh, the core of the team. That's back when it started, way back when it was uh, it included a, a few more people. Some of those people like uh, Paulo Vitor de Medrosa, uh, Shuhei Nakamura, and uh, yeah, like Eric Froelich 
we've sort of weaved in and out of the team and they've either gone on by themselves or gone to join other teams, you know, just the way uh, life sort of trickles down and intermingles. Mm -hmm. But uh, we were testing together for quite a while. And uh, right now, yes, it's uh, those five members. So it's Luis, Josh, Matt Nass, myself, and Paul Chion. Mm -hmm. And we are currently testing with uh, Team Ultra Pro, which is seven other people. Mm -hmm. When did you join Team Channel Fireball? I've been around since day one, and that was for Pro Tour Kyoto. Uh, basically, when Channel Fireball first got started was uh, the, the website. That's when we, uh, as a team, uh, were officially together. But we had been testing unofficially for a long time before that as well. That's very cool. And David, what is it like to work with other legends in the game? It's... Uh, well, from my perspective, it's there isn't as much of a wow factor. I don't go to into a testing session. It's like, oh my god, oh my god, it's it's Matt Nass. <laughs> I mean, this is just, or you know, oh my god, oh my god, it's Josh Arleden, or, or oh my god, it's Louis Scott Vargas. It's you know, here's my buddy. Who I, here are my friends that I've been playing Magic with for the longest time, and that's actually one of the, the dynamics that should be present in a lot of testing teams. Actually, or I, that I suspect is is people who play Magic generally play with their friends. And that holds true with me. I've been playing Magic with them for as long as I've been playing Magic. And, uh, and that's a very long time because I'm quite old. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, me playing with my buddies. That is very cool. Yeah. So, as far as the... As far as my the dynamic between me and the rest of my teammates, it's you know just us kind of hanging out, having a good time playing. And we just happen to be playing or preparing for a, a high-level tournament. What are some of the unique traits that each member of Team Channel Fireball bring to the team? Luis is uh, quite a joker. He likes uh, wordplay a lot. And so, mm -hmm. he'll uh, keep the mood light and hearty and sort of jokingly and in quite endearingly making fun of everyone else mm -hmm. uh, on the team. And uh, there's a lot of, of banter that goes back and forth between friends. And as anyone who's experienced that has experienced that can... Uh, suspects how it plays out. Mm -hmm. um, and so, that's basically what any any sort of session is is like between the five of us. Manass is quite inventive as far as the decks that he comes up with. He and Josh are uh, very creative in that regard. They brew some really interesting decks and it's always a pleasure to see what they come up with for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's just say that there have been a few too many magmatic insights registered by our team as a result. <laughs> I won't say whose idea that that is, or that was rather, but we've certainly played a lot with the card. And there are a lot of instances like that for, with uh, other cards as well. So there's a good chemistry between all five of you. It's not like someone is a taskmaster and one person is always late. There's always a good even flow of fun, casual creativity. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of that. I am known to be a little bit more on the stern side and, uh -huh. than uh, everyone else. The uh, old man, as it were. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try and keep things going, although it's not really like I'm proctoring them or or anything like that. But you know, I'll just I'll try and keep things moving. I'll, I'll totally own up to being uh, the spoiler. I just uh, <laughs> being all business. <laughs> that is really cool. 
David, aside from magic, you're also a connoisseur of all things food and drink. I just wanted to talk foodie with you for a little bit. Yeah, sure. I love all of your tweets that you uh, have so generously categorized as hashtag Ocho Eat Tweets. And I've been looking through them. They're very interesting. Oh, yeah. Ocho Eat Tweets is actually a uh, an idea that uh, Marshall Sutcliffe suggested to me. He said, man, you should probably uh, create some sort of hashtag for them. And Ocho Eat Tweets was born. That is so cool. It wasn't anything that I, that I came up with uh, individually. I was looking through some of them, and I see a lot of bread and pastries. And is, is bread or pastries kind of like kind of what you lean towards when you look for something that is delectable to take a photo of? Yeah, the bread and pastries are uh, are good. It's a nice, nice medium. Uh, if I were to get breakfast, I would probably have some sort of uh, French pastry or uh, toast-related object. <laughs> toast-related object. Yeah, I do see a lot of beautiful toast. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little uh, canvas to work with. Uh-huh. Yeah, you eat a lot of very healthy things, a lot of whole grains I see, uh, good greens. You also have uh, different preserves and things that I've seen you work on. Oh, yeah. I'm currently working with a lot of uh, pickling and fermentation, and, and that's what I'm fascinated with uh, the most at right now. That is so cool. Did you see that Netflix documentary, Cooked? I don't recognize it by name. I may have seen some episodes, but I, I've forgotten. Oh, you would love it. I can't remember the name of the gentleman, but he was the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, Michael Pollan? Yes. There we go. Thank you. Yes. And he goes through this, it's like a four-part series and it's fire, water, earth, and air or something like that. The elements, right? And uh, in Earth, the episode, he talks about pickling and fermentation and how important that is, is a part of our diet. I think you would love that episode. Yeah, that's interesting. Definitely check it out because, uh, and, and it's funny that you were saying how you are working on a lot of pickling and fermentation and uh, yes, toast would be a perfect vehicle for those kinds of foods that you make. Yeah, toast, yeah, you can, it's very, very flexible. You can have it range from sweet to savory and you can put a ton of different types of foods on it and have it be as light or as heavy as you want it to be and can scale up very nicely and travels quite well. Mm -hmm. Do you make your own bread? From time to time. I don't ha have nearly as much baking experience uh, as I would like to, although I, I do happen to have a, uh, a yeast starter sort of living in my refrigerator right now and for when I want to break it out and make some sourdough or anything like that. Yeah, and sourdough is quite well known down in San Francisco. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. Absolutely. Are you a coffee fan? I do drink coffee. I don't have as much experience with that as uh, some other stuff. I, I, I can't really talk too much about like terroir or how a soil will translate out to a specific bean quality or, mm -hmm. or much to that regard. Yeah, I can't either. Um, I don't drink a lot of coffee. I used to out of necessity for staying awake because I was so busy. But now I am glad to say that I can just enjoy coffee from more of a culinary perspective of like, hmm, this is a very delicious, tasty beverage. Being up in Seattle and also growing up in Portland, there is a lot of good coffee. Not too long ago, I recently traveled to Bali, Indonesia. And so, I have some very special Balinese coffee that I would love to pop in the mail and send to you. I would like for you to try it. Oh, wow. That sounds uh, exquisite. Yeah, because you also had a couple of coffee coffee tweets along with your pastries and your toast. So, I was like, hey, that might be a thing that David would enjoy. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I do uh, like 
to drink uh, coffee frequently. I'll usually have about one cup every day in the morning just to keep me woken up. And I I enjoy the just drinking it uh, black for the most part. Although I, I do like getting lattes from time to time when I'm out and about. Mm-hmm. David, I also wanted to ask you, could you share with us maybe one of your most memorable meals? Hmm. Well, this would probably be when I was uh, traveling for Pro Tour Theros, I think. Yeah, that was in Dublin, Ireland. Uh-huh. And this was actually after the Pro Tour when I had gone to a, a day trip up uh, near Northern Ireland to Giant's Causeway. Mm-hmm. We had made a stop in this one town called uh, Doolin, and it was for lunch, and so it was at this place where I don't even remember the, the name of the, the shop. Uh-huh. It was just this sort of restaurant and hotel in one, and they were doing their thing, and they had this uh, seafood chowder, and it looked like a dark rye quick bread or something uh-huh. of that that nature. It was like a... A savory quick loaf. And I got a little cup of that and a slice of bread and had this knob of butter. And of course, I had to get some cheesecake because there was cheesecake available. <laughs> and when you get, when you have the option of getting cheesecake or not getting cheesecake, you, you will get cheesecake and <laughs> done with it. That's awesome. The time of day uh, is, is irrelevant. <laughs> if, it's, if it's on the table, you take some. And so it, it was just a, a very enjoyable meal. It was just this nice hearty bowl of seafood chowder with a lump of bread and some uh, cheesecake with a, a red berry compote on it. And and that was that. And we were there for about an hour and it was a wonderful experience. Wow. Yeah, to be in a different place and then also to have something of simplistic elegance that highlights whatever is local, the culture and also whatever local produce that is there, that, that is very special. Yeah, it was very humble and rustic and not by any means like white tablecloth or elegant in that regard, but it was very uh, home felt and loving and it just was completely satisfying for the moment. Yeah, that's one of the important qualities that you uh, should really try and get out of a meal was have it be comforting, I think. Yeah. One of the most memorable meals I've had recently is I traveled with my wife to Puerto Rico and uh, there was a small restaurant there called Jose Enrique. And it's just located in a house kind of kind of away from downtown or kind of from away from all the touristy things and just uh, just a house. But you could not tell from the outside that the house would be a completely packed and incredibly popular restaurant. There was no seating, so there was only standing room at the bar. So, my wife and I, we just kind of cozy up to the end of the bar. It was literally the last standing room available. And everything on the menu was just incredibly immaculate. It was like little crab puff pastries or something like that, little crab brioche cups. And it was bright and acidic and the the bread was delicious. And then they also had these little fried uh, red snapper fillets, but they kind of, they filleted it and they kind of split down the middle. So there was no spine, but they kind of left the tail and fried up the head. And it was salty and crispy, but perfectly moist on the inside. And it had some like tartness from lime. It was just a nice balance. And it was just very interesting to have cuisine like that, something fresh and local and homemade and special, but it was just, it just felt like, it just felt like me 
Michelin star quality, <laughs> but we were just standing around and having these appetizers. I think it was very similar to the one that you had in, in not in terms of the cuisine or the place, but in kind of the experience that it was, it was local and it wasn't super high end by any means, but it just kind of highlighted this simplicity of what was available locally. Yeah, having local fresh food is worth a lot to me. Just having access to that, what's ripen on the trees, so to speak, or just fresh cotton you know, has been foraged or grown within like 50 miles or so of wherever you're eating it is great. Just because you're going to have this freshness level that you wouldn't really experience otherwise if it were delivered through a uh, distribution chain that is traditionally seen in like, mass uh, grocery store franchises. Were you able to get any uh, interesting food while you were in Portland? Uh, so, when I was there, I went out to a uh, place called Tasty and Sons that uh, I usually go for for brunch. Yeah, that place is great. And that was pretty solid. I got this uh, cornmeal cake with steak and cheddar eggs, which was uh, okay. Yeah, whenever I go down to Portland, I always try to uh, swing by places like Toro Bravo. They have great Spanish tapas and then also like Pac Pac, which is like Thai street food. Um, and those are always very exotic and also very well done and very special to have. It's a great treat. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Pac Pac and I went there one time during my uh, last trip, but uh, unfortunately did not get the wings that the, everyone raves about. The wings, yeah. Uh, but I'm interested to see what those are like next time I go up there. Yeah, uh, definitely. Like for the listening audience, uh, these uh, chicken wings at Pak Pak are fish sauce glazed and they're like sweet and savory and they have a little bit of a pungentness from the fish sauce and they're kind of like, you know, they're Thai fried chicken wings and they're a great appetizer and they're sticky and they're rich and they're crispy. They're perfect. So, if you go on to Yelp and you look for Pok Pok, P-O-K space P-O-K from Portland, Oregon, you'll probably find lots of pictures of those chicken wings. Having that nice balance is what would highlight a, uh, a good dish is just not being overly sweet, but it has like textural contrast as well as an equal representation of uh, fat and acid and sweet and savory just to, to balance everything out and keep it interesting and not cloying. That's what makes uh, food interesting is having that constantly balanced dynamic. Yeah, next time, if because of a magic event or something, I'm going to have to try to meet up with you and we'll have to go on a food adventure or something. Yeah, we could probably do that. David, going back to magic, I wanted to ask, do you have any advice for new players just joining the game? So, for new players joining the game, there is usually going to be some level that you are going to start out with. You'll have some amount of experience playing games, whether it's zero or some, and that'll let you understand how to play the game at a basic level. And if you don't really have any experience playing, then it's going to be take a little bit more time. But what you want to do is find a local gaming store and start to go there mm -hmm. playing with people uh, just because magic is a pretty social game. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be playing live is going to be generally a bit more fun than playing online. Although playing online is going to be a bit more uh, flexible in terms of your schedule. Like there's right. no travel time. You can join a, an event online much more quickly than if you were to go to a, a live event. And for those people who can do so in an equal amount of time are blessed. I must say like truly blessed if you can go to a tournament the, across the street. That's, that's awesome. 
Yes, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday at a local gaming store, and、uh, she was sharing with me. Sometimes it can be difficult as a fairly new player to sit down at a game store and compete with people who are much better than you. You know, you get some eye rolls, you get a couple. You know, you're a noob. This is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to draw here.、Uh, but I really encouraged her, and I said, "Well, when I first started off、uh, getting back into from kitchen table magic, very casual into more." Competitive weekly events, FNMs, and Pro Tour qualifiers, and GPs, and things like that.、Um, I would completely scrub out zero and X in many of my events, and it was intimidating. It was a little tough. I definitely shed some tears about it, but I shared with her that it's important to stick with it, and eventually you're going to run into someone that is really going to want to help you and be your friend. And I would say the vast majority of the Magic community is very supportive, and I have met tremendous people up here in the Seattle area who are now. All my very close friends, and I'm so grateful to have you know over three stores full of people who all know me and are are very、uh, helpful and kind to me and always willing to teach me the game. And I do credit that to be one of the things that have significantly contributed to my leveling up in the recent years. And so you're right, David. I do encourage people to go out to their local game stores, get to know them, get to know their owners and organizers and judges and local people and things like that, because. That is a great way to get better. It it is a little tough sometimes, but I do encourage、um, all players. If you're listening right now and you do feel sometimes a little bit intimidated or it is a little bit tough to get out and post a record, just just keep in mind it's it's not about the record. It's about your experience and it's about your enjoyment of the game. Yeah, that's wonderful. One of the things that I would also recommend highly is just is finding out places to play. Like, just be as diligent about that as you possibly can, and realize the type of experience that you want to get out of the game. Because you know there are a lot of ways that you can play, and a lot of places that you'll be able to play within that experience. Like、if you want to be just a a casual player, there there is a lot of support for that, and there's also a lot of support for being a competitive、uh, player. And depending on、uh, how you want to play, there there will be either more or less support.、Uh, so really high level plays, you're not going to have as much support as something that's more in the middle. Like it seems like it's going to be、uh, more like a, a bell curve. But、uh, going back to Uh, looking for places to play, you want to find the place that's best for you. And finding out what you want to do personally is going to lead to the most enjoyment. What you want to realize and not forget is that ultimately this this is a game, and you should ha- have fun, and that's you know, very important. Absolutely. And David, I also want to ask you what advice you have for players wanting to improve and aspiring to get onto the pro tour. Uh, so this is going to go back to finding people who、uh, have similar goals that are better than you. People who are just have the same aspirations. Find contact and join up with those people. They're going to have similar goals to you, and realize that, as I said, this is a、uh, this game is quite social. And if you find people who have the same goals that you have, who are also as good or better than you, you'll benefit from their knowledge. Just like uh, uh, in team building, you'll,、uh, as I spoke about earlier, I've, I've benefited from just having experience with other people who have been playing with、uh, this game for a longer time than I have at a level that's、uh, higher than what I play at, and so you'll see. These people making decisions and understanding the game、uh, in ways that you might not understand 
uh, initially, but with uh, time and experience, you'll come to realize that, hey, look, this is probably a good thing that they're doing. And so I'll gain an understanding of that. And eventually you'll be playing at a higher level. The amount of time that this takes, it's it'll, it varies from case to case, but you'll be getting better if you pay attention and follow those instructions, I suppose. Yeah, that is some great insight, David. Just kind of wrapping up now, what are you up to these days? Kind of what's new for you? What's on the horizon? Well, as far as uh, magic goes, this is the the end of the 2015-2016 season and the start of the 2016-2017 season. And Grand Prix Portland was the first uh, premier level tournament for the 16-17 uh, the year. With that, it's going to be um, basically a new new year and new quest for uh, being, I guess, a member of the the world championship and the, the highest level tournaments that are uh, offered. And so what that is, is you've got Grand Prix tournaments and the Pro Tour tournaments, and those all pay out in points that will allow you to, uh, once accumulated, play in the uh, premier invitational only tournaments at the end of the uh, the current season. So... There's a tournament called the World Championship, which is the top roughly 24 or 32 people um, at the end of the year based on some number of categories. Basically, the, the simplified version is the, the top 30 people um, get to play in a tournament. David, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Generally, I would say blue, which is a little bit of a cop-out, but the mindset of blue is what I would uh, say, just because when you get down to it, blue has a lot of very tricky interactions. It's, it's very. It seems like it would be more nuanced, as people would uh, describe that. If uh, someone's playing a blue deck or against it more often, they'll often be uh, frustrated because they would accuse their opponents of making a deck that doesn't do anything. It's like, why can't you do that? Just stop doing nothing. Like, but I am doing something. I'm playing in a, on a different, uh, in a different dynamic than, than most other decks function. And what that is, is a, a deck that is much more hand-based or has board interactions that are not as frequently seen. And the easy description of that is, uh, I like to think I'm tricky. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> David, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? If I could change something about Magic, it would be having a better online component. Because I love the option of being able to play online because it's just so convenient. Uh, but I don't like the interface. Mm -hmm. the, the way where Magic Online is right now is not very good. It's it's um, as a program, it's it's a pretty miserable experience, and that can be a bit off putting. Mm -hmm. So I would want to improve on that in some function. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, David. Rapid fire question number three: If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? If I could give something to every Magic player, I suppose it would be bit of joy because ultimately that's what I'm trying to get out of the game. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess that's a bit more a bit more romantic than what you might be thinking of. <laughs> no, that's perfect. There's always been a, a wide range of answers. So that's that's great. David, rapid fire question number 4. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? 
so for the future of magic, I see that, uh, this is going to be tie into the uh, online portion. I, I see that changing a lot. That is the area that I see the most change and growth in and some sort of transformation into how that, the online aspect is viewed will be uh, what I see changing the most. Okay. Very, very cool. And last, David, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? So if I were to ask the uh, listening audience one thing or request them to one thing, it would be to uh, to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is whenever you are playing Game of Magic or sit down to play against someone, whether it's live or online, you're playing against another person. Like, and sometimes it's easy to forget that. And I'll be the first person to admit that I may not be the nicest person to play against <laughs> at times. I, I try, I strive, I really do. And uh, <laughs> there'll be times when I'm, I'm not. But for the most part, I try and be as courteous as possible, not forgetting that. And because, uh, you know, this is a game, it's very social, like I've said. Mm -hmm. I would love for people to want to play the game again. And so by giving them a good experience, you'll reinforce that desire. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great sentiment. I love that. And where can they find you on social media if they want to connect with you? So if you want to find me, uh, you cannot find me on Facebook or you can try, <laughs> but I will probably not respond. <laughs> But uh, you can find me on Twitter, and if you want to do that, you can find me at underscore David Ochoa, which is my name spelled out. So that's underscore D-A-V-I-D-O-C-H-O-A. -I, -I. I will re reply to, to most uh, requests there. Okay, very cool. And then you also write a little bit on uh, Channel Fireball as well. Yeah, I produce uh, strategy content for Channel Fireball from uh, from time to time. Sometimes more than uh, than others. Uh, right, that's where all most of my content uh, ends up going. Wonderful, David. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Kitchen Table Magic. I really appreciate it. Do you have any parting words? Um, parting words. Uh, uh, hello and good luck. Uh, other than that, not at the moment. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. And we will have links all in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. David, thank you so much. You are such a wonderful personality and I wish you all the success. Thank you so much for being on the show today to share with us your wisdom and insight. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my interview with David Ochoa. I like what David said about getting better. Find a group of players that are more experienced and play test with them. There's a lot to be learned from them and they'll be happy to teach you as well. And for newer players, find a great place to play Magic. Having fun in a nurturing environment will make all the difference. I want to thank Amy Bailey and Jerry Thompson for encouraging David to be a guest on the show. I met a lot of great people at GP Portland last summer, 2016. If you want to hear about how a GP is put on, listen to my interview with Tim Shields of Cascade Games, Season 2, Episode 1. And at that GP, I was also able to meet Cedric Phillips, Brian Brown Doohan, Christine Sprankle, and JC Tao in person, all of which have shared their stories on Kitchen Table Magic. I want to take a quick moment to tell you about my friend Brian and the Magic players at Paragon City Games in Draper, Utah. Paragon City Games is an up-and-coming game store, and they're hosting giveaways every week on Twitch. They're giving away a lot of cool things, including die-hard metal dice, which are die-cast in zinc and then electroplated with other metals. They have a lot of heft to them, and they look really cool. 
Todd is the one who makes them with care and craftsmanship. And because Paragon City Games really cares about fostering a community of their local Magic players in the Salt Lake City area, they're doing many things to give back to that player community. First, they're streaming Tuesday Night Legacy at 7pm Mountain, which is 9pm Eastern and 6pm Pacific at twitch.tv slash ParagonCityGames. Second, with the recent changes to Grand Prix Trials no longer being held at the local LGS level, Paragon City Games have decided to award travel vouchers to their players who win their Grand Prix Trials at their local events. That's a really awesome way for them to go the extra mile for the last few Grand Prix Trial events available to players in their local community. So I really want to acknowledge Paragon City Games for going the extra mile, so please check out their Twitch stream every Tuesday night for giveaways and also watch some Legacy and also win some great stuff. Links will be in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. And again, their Twitch stream is twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. I also want to thank my new Patreon supporter, James. Thank you so much, James, for becoming a Patreon supporter of Kitchen Table Magic. I surprised James the other day by showing up in person to deliver a bag of those magic fish crackers that Brad Rutherford and I were eating during our Abzan Company deck tech. A lot goes into making Kitchen Table Magic, and I want to bring you stories from iconic figures in the MTG community that have never been told. I want you to know, the listener, that every dollar you give through patreon.com slash kitchen table magic goes into making the show by paying for server costs, audio editing software, and equipment. And if we meet our goals, I'm committed to rewarding my Patreon supporters with memorable gifts. I want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, Brian, Marcus, and James. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's show. Remember, I'm always here to chat and answer your questions. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Kitchen Table Magic Podcast and on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Which brings me to a very exciting announcement. I want to wish mtgcast.com a happy 11th birthday. If you don't know mtgcast.com, it's an amazing service that brings together a ton of magic podcasts for listeners. I'm so grateful to be a part of mtgcast, and I want to thank them for allowing me to share Kitchen Table Magic on their network. I also want to thank the admins. They do so much hard work for free to bring so much content to listeners and the MTG community. Thank you so much. And if you can, head on over to mtgcast.com and click on support. Support them by donating a few dollars each month to their membership. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. You know, we always hear that the best way to get better at magic is to play with people who are better than you. Uh, and so w- what you can do, you can find people at your store. And so I was like, oh, you know, but the best people to play with are the pros. Now, we might not be able to play with the pros all the time, but next to that is being able to talk to them and pick their brains. And that's kind of the angle that I, that I came at it from. I was like, you know, I would love to talk with them, see what are they doing? I, I originally approached it as, is there some kind of secret sauce, right? Are they doing something that we're not doing, you know? And the vast majority of them don't do magic full time. You know, they have lives, families, jobs that they are still good at magic, even though they have these other things going on. And so, uh, but that was the impetus. That, that's where it came from was, you know, if we can't play with the pros, then let's at least sit down and talk with them. I'm talking to Sean Penrod of MTG Pro Tutor. Sean is dedicated to distilling down all the best tips from the pros and sharing them with the community. With over 180 episodes, Sean has interviewed the best of the best, including Patrick Chapin, John Finkel, Paolo Vitor Dominarosa, and Reed Duke. Join me and Sean as we talk about improving at Magic the Gathering, talking to pros, and more, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.